0: Well, hey, Grace Family, here we are in a position and a place that we never thought we would ever be in, but God had different plans. And even though we know the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapters 10 tells us to not neglect the gathering together of the saints, we're in a position where we believe that what we're doing right now is really in the best interest of all involved, to take this time to not gather together in our church buildings, but to still worship the Lord and live as we live On six other days of the week, not as the church gathered, but as the church scattered. And so here we have this opportunity. It's not normal. It's not what we're used to. And we certainly miss the norm. But we have this opportunity to sit back and to listen to God's word, whether it's in the comfort of our own homes alone, whether you're meeting together with a small group or other family members, we get to hear God's word together, not as the church gathered, but the church scattered. The church is not a building. The church is people. Living, breathing people like you and like me who are creating a living organism called the church. And so we may not be in a church building today, but nonetheless, we come together now to hear the word of God. We hope you enjoy the message.
1: Well, we've been in a series on the book of Acts, which is a record of how the gospel of Jesus Christ spread and spread. It did. It was like wildfire. It's moving through the Roman Empire. And as we look at the book, we're looking at events that occurred some 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And when we look at these early Christians, we should pick up on some things. Love, joy and sacrifice was evident in them because grace had rescued them, and it was transforming them. Their faith was firmly set on the person and work of Jesus, and their lives were fully surrendered to communicating the gospel for God's glory. Well, today we're going to explore part of chapter 20, where we see a very personal interaction of Paul with other believers. Luke recorded two messages of Paul up to this point, both to unbelievers. One to Jews, the other to the Gentiles. But here you're going to see in this passage today something that Luke does, who is the author of Acts. He slows it down. He slows down his telling of Christianity's spread, and he gives us a front-row seat to what Paul had to say not to unbelievers, but to believers who were dear to him. And it's a message to the elders of the Ephesian church who came out to meet Paul and hear from him. He wanted wanted them to understand their calling as well as he wanted them to understand what he was about to do, what he felt like God wanted him to do, and what he faced as he was going to do it. It's kind of a last will and testament, if you will, as he pours out his heart to them. And these people are dear to Paul. He had spent three years with them. Now, before we get into what he says, many teachers I know treat this text as instructions to elders. And that is true. I'm not taking anything away from that, but that is short-sighted because this is the only sermon to Christians from Paul that we find in the book of Acts. And what we absolutely cannot miss goes beyond what he says. It's what he does that Luke witnessed, witness which speaks volumes about the kind of Christians that we are to be in the face of uncertain times. What kind of people are we to be? And I want you to know, as we look at this, this is not about arriving. It's about becoming. It's something of a journey, if you will. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20 and follow along as I read verses 17 through 38. Now for Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life as of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus... To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you whom I have gone uh, now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to you yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among you, on your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering for three years I did not cease Night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend to you God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give to you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And all these things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, let me pause here just for a moment. That is not, we don't see that in the gospels, but obviously this is knowledge of Paul that Christ said this. And when he had said these things, he knelt down, Meaning Paul, and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again, and they accompanying him to the ship. Well, this passage is personal, and it's much more than a job description. For overseers, or elders, or bishops, or pastors. In fact, this word is used interchangeably, and it's the same description that we see in other places in the New Testament. They're virtually the same thing. But I want you to see that there's application for all of us beyond those leaders. Every other sermon in the book of Acts is an evangelistic message directed to unbelievers, but right here, Paul is laying it on the line, pouring out his heart, about what it looks like to be the church and live unashamed and unafraid. What Paul says must permeate not only the leaders of the church, but every single Christian if the world is to know and see the distinct nature of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And when evident, the world cannot help but notice When believers sacrifice and give their lives away, our communities will be turned upside down because the hope that we have and we know in Jesus Christ. So what does that look like? Well, if you're paying attention, as I went through this lengthy passage, you probably noticed, noticed there was a whole lot of natural inclination that Paul had and you and I have that he is putting down. He's actually killing so that God would do in their lives the same thing that he was doing in Paul's life. And Paul also understood that this killing that needed to be happening would be something that would aid him in reaching the people he was going to next. So I want to show you some, some specific things that Paul shows us that you and I must be actively killing if we're going to be the people of God that impact the world in which we live for the glory of God. So here's the first thing. Be killing the promotion of you so that humility becomes you. Pride is at the root of nearly all sin. It's been a problem for us as human beings from the very beginning. But we live in a day of self promotion like no other through social media, what we scream and cheer about, what we affirm, and what we celebrate in so many ways. But what exactly is pride and what does it do to us? Well, pride is the inaccurate assessment of our wisdom, of our value our very essence in light of others, and especially in light of God. It thrives on what others, what you think, positive or negative, what others think of you, and downplays what God actually says about you. But humility, on the other hand, is seeing yourself accurately in light of God. And I hope you know that there's some stark warnings in the Bible about how pride puts us spiritually at odds with God. Hear the word of the Lord. Proverbs 16, 5 says this. Whoever is proud in heart is an abomination to God. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. And it's not just the world around us, folks. It's evident actually among professing believers The promoting of ourselves is actually exhausting because not only are we trying to find new ways to do it, we spend endless hours comparing ourselves to others. Do you know what that's called? Well, Scripture calls that fear of man, this comparing fear of man. You may think fear of man is being scared of other people, like it's some kind of phobia. And although that is true, Most of the time, fear of man is put on display in you being so concerned about what everyone thinks about you. It's draining because it bleeds you of some of your best thought and energy that could be spent on living for what matters most. And you won't start living for what matters most, becoming all that God intended you to be, designed you to be, until you stop living for the little kingdom of yourself. That kingdom of self powers a radar in all of us that is constantly assessing how people perceive you. How much they like you and whether they accept you. It's exhausting. Well, there's a great book to find out if this is a problem in your life and how to deal with it. Ed Welch's book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, is an outstanding treatment for those who struggle with this. And what to do about it. And if you think. Well Brian. That's not really actually something. I have a whole lot of problem with. But I do think a lot about. My past. And I think about. How. Uh, how life's going. And the right things I did. And the wrong things I did. Well this book. Which I read in the past year. Called think again. Is an outstanding treatment. For those who deal with. Too much introspection. I heartily both of these books to you. You can get them in the resource center. You can order them online or from your local retailer. Now look with me at the first six words of verse 16. Luke records Paul saying this, serving the Lord with all humility. That word humility is used 200 times in the New Testament. And it's worded right here. The way it is worded. Is an indication of a virtue. That should not only just be something added on. But it encompasses or wraps around. All that you do. With all humility. Did you know. That this is the one thing that gets God's attention. Isaiah 66, two says this. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Well, I don't know about you, but I want God looking at me. Did you see it? God's gaze is drawn to the humble. You see, it doesn't matter how much you do. It doesn't matter how gifted you are. If you get in the way from a lack of humility, you short-circuit your life spiritually and it's virtually easy for the world to ignore you, to ignore the church. Because when we lack humility, we look like everyone else. And humility can't just be some kind of lapel pin or ball cap or string of pearls. Humility is not an accessory to your outfit. You need more than some kind of add-on of humility. That really, actually, that add-on is nothing more than a piece that complements you. Humility must become you. It must embody you. And the reason why that it works this way is because living for you and living for Jesus are mutually exclusive. You can't do both. You are either promoting you or you are promoting the Lord Jesus Christ. For Jesus to be seen appropriately, for him to be exalted, you have to lay low and you've got to stay low. And I wish I could tell you that this is a one and done type of thing. It's not. In fact it is a daily battle. It is a deliberate step to get low, lay low, and stay right there. Here's the picture we need to firmly get in focus. The Greek word for serve in verse 19 is is the word doulos. It simply means a slave or a servant. But the best picture is what is the word that Paul uses over in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, which is a verse that all of us should commit to memory. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ. Now, that is the NIV translation. Men ought to regard us as servants of Christ. That word that Paul uses there is not doulos. It is huperestes, a word that refers to a slave. Like in a big galley ship, who is down below and rowing. He can't see what's going on above. He just does his job. He rows. Someone else is in charge. Someone else is up on deck. Someone else is center stage. Who is that for the Christian? Well, that's Jesus, our Savior. You and I are in the shadows. We're not seeking the spotlight. We're down below. We are rowing away. So what about you? Who's actually center stage in your life? Who's in the spotlight? Is it you or is it Jesus? See, when you get out of the way, You quit being consumed with you. You're not tied up and about what others think so that actually you care appropriately for them. But you don't need them to approve of you. You know who you are. You're a child of the king. You're a servant of the sovereign God. And when you are his servant. You want the spotlight to be on him exactly where it belongs. And this is the place where you will love people more because you need them less. Now, I know that sounds counterintuitive, but hear it again. You will love people more when you need them less because you are not consumed about what they're thinking or how they perceive you. You just give your life away. But there's more. Paul had more to say here in this passage. Secondly, be killing the part of you that remains shallow and isolated so that deep, meaningful friendships are cultivated. I believe we watered down some important words, words like fellowship. We've reduced that to cookies and punch in the fellowship hall. Even the word community, which is a better word, and we get sometimes, But it often refers to where you are physically situated or that you identify with something. The word we actually should be thinking about is the word friendship, most specifically biblical friendship. And that's what you see at the end of chapter of the chapter here in verse chapter 20 down in verse 36 through 38. There's nothing shallow and isolated here about Paul. Look at it again, or any of the followers of him. Picking up in verse 36 through 38, and when he had said these things, he's talking about Paul, Luke's talking about Paul, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. Now, before I dive in to this, I want men to listen carefully to me. You and I have to be very careful to not, not let the culture identify masculinity for us. Culture may imply that men don't cry, but I hope you understand the Bible shows us that real men weep. They weep because they have feelings. They weep because they hurt, because they need others, and they miss others. I weep over my lost loved ones. I cry when I look at my grandchildren to the bewilderment of my wife. I'm emotionally moved when I see God at work in other person's lives, which is what we call here a god sighting. Remember Paul's instruction in Romans twelve fifteen. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Here's what should be evident in this passage to us. You can't have genuine friendship or community without truth. All these things that Paul says to these followers is about truth. Relationships need to hinge on something bigger than the relationship itself. Meaningful friendship requires shared convictions but it also requires vulnerability, tears, and a willingness to open up and really share your heart. That's why Christians are in a position to have some of the best friendships in the world. But it requires vulnerability. Life in the deep end of the pool with truth and with tears. And this is not an automatic thing. Again, you have to be willing To kill your concern about what other people's thinking so that you can love them well. For Paul and for the Ephesians elders in this moment, this felt like a gut punch. They were weeping at the thought of being separated from their friend Paul. And this has happened to me as well. It's probably happened to you. Some dear friends of mine are now at the Independence Campus and have been at the Fort, Campus, uh, Fort Thomas Campus for some time. And it's good because they're investing in the lives of others for others to be reached, but that does not make it easy. In fact, it's hard. It's hard when someone like Alex and Kristen Owsley who attend the Fort Thomas Campus come to me and say that they feel led of God to invest in another group. Just like it was when Derek and Edie Chow left my group, Mark and Karen Ross, and Andrew and Kristen Wilson, Christine Wilson, who are at uh, Independence now. And I could go on and on. There's many others. Not gone, but it's so long for now. It's hard because we love one another. And our relationship is built on more than sports or hobbies. It's based on the person, the work of Jesus in our lives. And I know some of you may be thinking, Brian, I don't know what you're talking about. I want friends. I want them badly. I just can't seem to make any. I know it. I get it. And this might sound confusing at first, but you need to absorb this. Listen carefully. Deep friendships are not the result of pursuing friendship as a standalone need in your life. The best friendships are forged in the midst of doing and pursuing something else, of sharing truth, pursuing more. Think about soldiers who return from active duty in wars. Why do you think they tell us they feel closer to their comrades than their biological families. It's because they serve with and risk their lives with and face danger with those people. We've got so many people who believe nothing and they risk nothing, but they want great friendship nonetheless. But real friendship is forged in the trenches of conviction and then the place of sacrifice. Does that exhibit you? Well, I love how C.S. Lewis, in his brilliant way, often, as he often did, he offers great insight, and he does so about friendship. He says this, friendship happens between two people who are not self-absorbed. In fact, he says that friendship happens best when two people see that they are kneeling before the same thing. Christians can quickly and easily form friendships if they're kneeling before the same thing, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says in his book, The Four Loves. Pathetic people, and again, this is hard-hitting, pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is is that we should want something else besides friends. Their truthful answer to the question, do you see truth, would be, well, I see nothing, I don't care about the truth. I just want a friend. Well, no friendship can arise. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going there nowhere have no fellow travelers. Wow. Wow. There's a third thing I want you to see, and most appropriate for today. You need to be killing your fear of the unknown. How appropriate that many months ago, as Pastor Brad was planning this sermon series, that this particular week landed on this particular passage that deals much with the unknown, the unknown Paul faces, the unknown that we face. You are going to know fear. It's one of the first emotions voiced from Adam after sinning against God. Genesis 3.10 records what he says. I heard the sound of you, he's talking about God. I heard the sound of you, God, in the garden, and I was afraid. Fear is a substantial theme in the Bible. There are more than 600 references to fear or being afraid. It's a reality of our fallen and our fragile state. But something That you must be killing, you must be putting to death if you are truly trusting God with your life. You need to face life, and I need to face life, with an open Bible, not a worried mind. The things that you perceive threaten you, do not threaten our God. Nor His faithfulness to His glory, and to your good so yes you still see the reality of possible threat but you don't perceive it the same way and this is what happened to Paul look at this in verse 22 to 24 Paul saying and now i am going to jerusalem constrained by the spirit not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor precious to myself if I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, the NIV, that latter part, when Paul says... uh, I do not account my life of any value. The NIV NIV reads it this way. I consider my life nothing to me, which I believe is a more accurate reflection of what Paul is saying. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. When your main concern stops about being preserving and protecting your life, you stop needing to know the details about what tomorrow holds. The reason some of you stay so worked up about what might happen next is because you are not killing actively the fear of the unknown. You have anxiety, and it is rooted in the need to preserve and protect your life. Look again at verse 22. And I am going, not knowing what will happen to me there. When you let go of protecting your life, you can face things, and you can go places without knowing what will happen To you. Get a hold of this. Please hear me. If your life is dominated by fear, by worry and anxiety, your problem is not fear of possible things. Your problem is fear of the wrong thing. God is the only one that we should be fearing. We should be struck dumb with all of him. Yes, appropriately, careful how we walk before him, for he is God. But the fear and worry about what might happen to you is actually a problem of your self-centeredness. Frankly, in my life, when that occurs, it's nothing more than selfishness. How about you? People often think that the answer to fear is courage. You need more courage. But biblically, that's not right. The answer to fear is love. Listen to the truth of God's love and what it does for us. 1 John 4, 8 tells us there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear in love are opposites, not fear and courage. Dr. J. Adams says it well. The enemy of fear is love. The way to put off fear is to put on love. Love is self-giving. Fear is self-protecting. Love moves toward others. Fear shrinks away from them. But we must remember that love is stronger since it's able to cast out fear. In dealing with fear, nothing else possesses the same expulsive power. Wow, what a true and strong statement! Notice in verse twenty-four the phrase "if only." Look again. If only I may finish my course. "If only" is actually better translated so that now you understand. Uh, so that so that means a purpose clause. Paul says my life is not all about self-preservation so that, so that I finish what God has called me to do. To declare the gospel of the grace of God. That is what God has called us to do in the face of uncertainty, in the face of uncertain times. God has called us to be ambassadors of grace to a world that is fragile and unsure about what is to happen next. I know you have little voices in your head. That little voice that goes off in your head that invades your emotions with this. There's reason to be afraid. There's danger. This is bad. Just finish the sentence. You better do this. You better take this action. Whatever it may be. Whatever it is that floods your emotions out of those statements. Hear this. That is not your heavenly Father's voice. That's not Him. He does not speak to you that way. God speaks to us in love. He calls you to trust. He compels you to be His instrument. He reaches to you to be surrendered, to be an ambassador of His grace to a hurting world. Paul was not afraid even though he knew trials and pain were in front of him. Why is that so? Because he knew there was no place he would go without God. There was no place that he would go where God was not limiting, ordering, and controlling what was occurring in his life. God was with him and God was for him. And God is with us, and God is for us when we trust him. You can be killing fear. You can be killing fear so that your faith becomes more than talk. You can be killing fear so that you live fully devoted to Christ. So that the world will see that the love of Christ drives out fear. Because he is victorious, even over death, every threat, all of it, and especially death. Why is that? Because he is sovereign. Mark chapter 4 gives us an early glimpse in that gospel of his sovereignty. The disciples in Christ are in a boat. Jesus is asleep. And in the midst of a violent storm, Jesus' followers faced a moment of being utterly helpless. They asked, do you care that we're perishing? Jesus, the scripture tells us, wakes up, looks out, says three words. Peace, be still. And the sea was calm and the wind ceased. One of the disciples recorded is recorded saying this. Looking at that situation, even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him today even the wind and the waves that are unknown and the waves that surely come with tomorrow. Would you pray with me? Father, for, thank you. Thank you for being the God who grants to us by your spirit the ability to be putting to death the things in our life that keep us from following you fully, trusting you absolutely. Grant to us the ability to be killing fear. Grant to us the ability to be putting down that thing that exalts us, and may you be exalted only in our lives. And for those who sit And hear this message today. Who are shaken by the times. By the unknown. And they are suddenly realizing again. Life is fragile. Would you please show them. The goodness of your mercy and your grace. That Jesus is sufficient for their sins. And you call them to trust in him. As. As. Forgiveness and hope for right relationship with you. Make them right today. Oh, if you sit within earshot of this message, put your hope in him. He is sufficient. We pray to the glory of God and in Jesus name. Amen.